Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Western Civ, episode 188, The End of the Borgia Age. They say fortune is a wheel for a reason. As soon as you reach the top, it's one spin and down, down, down you go. Last time, Cesare Borgia absorbed nearly all of Romagna into his own private dukedom. On top of that, King Louis XII gave him the permission to take Bologna and chose to look the other way when it came to his incredibly illegal seizure of land. All this to get Borgia support for his goal, taking Naples. For a moment, it looked like the Borgia dream of a united Italy might come to fruition. But moments are like that. They pass. This time, we will see just how quickly the Borgia age goes as it comes to a dramatic and unexpected end. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After what could only be called one of the more successful diplomatic visits in history, Cesare took his leave of King Louis XII on September the 2nd, 1502. On his way back to Rome, he once more stopped to see his sister, only to discover that Lucrezia's condition had worsened. Just two days before he arrived, Lucrezia had given birth to a stillborn child. But even with her pregnancy terminated, her condition did not improve. The following evening, she suffered another setback. This time a priest was brought in to give her the last rites. Oddly enough, 
This seemed to have sparked something in Lucrezia, and she began to recover. Cesare did not wait to see it, though. Having felt as though he had spent enough time with his sister, he rode off into the night. The two siblings would never see each other again. Borgia returned to Imola and began setting up a structure through which to rule his new dukedom. While some towns were garrisoned, by and large the people of Romagna were just glad the period of lawlessness was over and someone was finally trying to govern the region. Cesare tried to put in place local elites who were untainted by the corruption of the past. He also recruited local clerics in cases in which he could not find adequate lay personnel. He was, in other words, engaging in a top-down restructuring of what he believed would be the beginning of a Borgia empire. One of the biggest changes that Cesare made was to remove his tough but trusted Spanish commander, Ramiro de Lorqua, as governor of the region. Lorqua would be made military governor of Rimini instead. Cesare had put Lorqua in the position because he knew that Lorqua would tolerate no insubordination at all. Any hint of a rebellion would be quashed at once. But Cesare did not want Romagna to be perceived as a conquered territory any longer. It was to be a self-administered state, with himself at the top. According to one source, Borgia, quote, had placed in the government of those people men who had governed them with so great justice and integrity, and he was greatly loved by them, end quote. Yet for all his efforts, Borgia was often still criticized for turning a blind eye when his Spanish and French garrisons got out of line. But he needed them. He needed them to defend his dukedom from both external and internal foes. His Italian commanders were strongly rumored to be forming a coup against him. Without his foreign garrisons, Cesare would be a sitting duck. In September, at Camerino, Alexander and Cesare held a series of private meetings. They even spoke in Catalan so that no one else could understand their conversation. It was essential that they patch up their differences and agree on a concerted strategy from then on. Alexander was realizing his age. His plan was now clear. He wanted to pass the papacy on to his son. It was a simple plan, frankly. Cesare already had control of Romagna in his own right, and he controlled the Papal States as captain of the Papal Guard. After Alexander's death, Cesare could quickly, perhaps immediately, force a conclave, using the unresolved situation in Naples as justification. Then he could assume the powers of Pope on a temporary basis while the affairs were sorted out. And once he did that, well, it would be next to impossible to dislodge him. And the papacy would become a Borgia inheritance. Alexander had spent years perfecting and planning this strategy. Now that the French were his allies, there was little that could stop him, so long as Louis went along with the plan. And the next step after that, 
reunite the former glory of the Roman Empire. Now, Alexander first wanted Caesare to flush out any potential conspirators and eliminate them. His plan was to march on Bologna. Bologna was the home of one of the suspected conspirators, and the other two, the Orisni brothers, would have to choose whether to accept the order, thus forcing them to show their hand. Cesare realized now that while his father was a smart man, he was no soldier. Cesare knew well that an attack on Bologna would never succeed, even if the Orsini brothers joined him, which was not likely. Moreover, if he drained all of his southern castles of their garrisons for an attack, it would leave Cesare's hard-won territory open to a counterattack. Cesare ultimately rejected his father's advice. He decided to return to Imola and do nothing. The longer he waited, the sooner his anticipated French reinforcements would arrive, as Louis prepared for the attack on Naples. Then, he would be strong enough to strike at the conspirators on his own terms. For once, the son was ahead of the father. But Alexander, rather foolishly, frankly, did not stick with Cesare's plan. He sent out a message summoning the Orisni brothers, intending to deal with them himself. In response, the brothers called a clandestine meeting of all the conspirators. Out of this meeting, led by the ruler of Siena, the conspirators hashed out a plan. They would reach out to Florence and Venice, both of whom were nervous about Borgia intentions, and see if they could strike an alliance. But no matter how smart the conspirators thought they were, they were still conspirators. Men who conspire against another do not have abundant levels of what we might call trust. And so, as Alexander knew would happen, the conspirators quickly turned against one another. Cesare picked the man he judged to be the weakest, Paolo Orsini, and offered him a deal. He could keep all his lands and papal protection if he came back to the Borgia side. As Cesare knew... Word of the offer quickly reached the other conspirators. Before anybody knew it, many of them were questioning whether the smart move might not just be to return to the Borgia fold. But back in Rome, Alexander believed the conspirators now held the upper hand. Then, news reached the Eternal City that there had been a spontaneous uprising in Leo, some 20 miles north of Urbino. Suddenly, it looked like the grand Borgia idea might not come to pass at all. Cesare quietly ordered some of his Spanish commanders to gather their troops and join him at Imola. When three of the conspirators struck at Urbino, he ordered his garrison commander to withdraw. He knew those conspirators well. They were not men fit to lead for any extended period of time. With time... Cesare believed that the population would turn against them. That would be the time to strike. Yet, when news reached nearby Fossombrani, ten miles away, that Urbino had thrown up the Borgia yoke, it too rebelled. And then another group of conspirators took the castle San Pietro, 
only seven miles up the road from Cesare's headquarters at Imola. While he remained in close communication with Lorquois at Rimini, Borgia realized that for all intents and purposes, he was now under siege. Furthermore, Venice was watching events closely, keen to see Cesare Borgia undone. Only the threat of war with King Louis of France stayed their hand. While most people probably would have assumed at this point that Cesare Borgia was finished, one did not. And he happened to be holed up with Cesare at Imola at the time. That man was none other than Machiavelli, from whom we get a lot of the first-hand reporting. On October 23rd, he wrote back to Florence as follows. Quote, The territory of this lord, Cesare Borgia, has been governed largely by his good fortune, the main factor here being the general opinion that the King of France will support him with troops, and the Pope will send money to pay for them. And another factor is the delay of his enemies in launching a final attack on him. In my opinion, it is far too late now to do him any harm, because he has sent soldiers to protect all his important cities, and made sure that they are fully provisioned to withstand a siege. End quote. So Cesare had prepared well. If the conspirators expected to beat him with some kind of simple blitzkrieg tactic, they were sorely mistaken. Cesare did not sit idle. He sent out his lieutenants on a recruiting drive, and they found ample men willing to fight for their duke. All in all, around 1,800 men flocked to his banner. And these were good soldiers, too. Most former mercenaries, not simple farmhands with plows and pickaxes. The French agreed to send 2,000 more men. 500 of them feared Gascons, considered to be the elite troops of the French army. And back in Rome, Alexander worked feverishly raising money so that all this could be paid for. But Romagna was not Alexander's only problem. Naples was increasingly moving from the back burner to the front one. Rodrigo Borgia's position on Naples around this time is so confusing that all I can honestly say is that his goal was to see the Borgias come out on top. End of sentence. He wrote to Venice, telling them that he feared the French taking over Naples. This he did to ensure that Venice did not intervene in Romagna, though he seems to have genuinely feared what might happen in the event of a complete French takeover of the lower Italian boot. At the same time, he wrote to Louis, ensuring him of papal support for the French conquest of Naples, wanting to keep French support flowing to Cesare. But now Naples was increasingly becoming a question of either Spanish or French conquest. Alexander needed to pick the winner, but which one was it? As for the Spanish, by and large, Pope Alexander hoped they would just go home. All around was a flurry of contradicting letters and messages. Is it any wonder many historians still throw up their hands when trying to decipher it all? Back in Imola, Cesare was hard at work. His initial offer to Paolo Orsini had worked to some extent. Paolo agreed to carry a message back to the group of conspirators offering reconciliation. Back in Rome, 
Alexander tried the same tactic with Cardinal Orsini in an effort to bring the family on board. As all this unfolded, winter kept the armies at bay while French soldiers trickled into Imola. Time was on the Borgia side. Cesare kept trying to turn the population against the conspirators. He sent message after message of clemency out to the countryside, telling everyone who would listen that they would be welcome back if they surrendered. Suddenly, the conspirators in Urbino were starting to have real doubts about this whole thing. In fact, one of the two of them fled and accepted offers of clemency to save their lives. With the conspiracy breaking down, Cesare sent a message to the former conspirators. He wanted them to meet up at the coastal town of Signalia at the end of December. They would reconcile, capture the town, then march on the much more important town of Ancona, and only then join forces with Louis and march south to Naples. To make sure all this happened, Pope Alexander raised yet another 15,000 ducats for his son, whose mercenary army was now costing about 2,000 ducats per day to maintain. That was the plan, on paper at least. Only Machiavelli remained skeptical that this was really what Cesare was up to. In fact, all Machiavelli knew was that he had no idea what Cesare was up to. And you know what? Back in Rome, Pope Alexander had come to the same conclusion. As if to prove them both right, suddenly on December the 10th, Cesare packed up and left Imola with his men. They stripped the town of any remaining food before they left, but the situation had been deteriorating for some time. We're still not sure exactly what Cesare's initial plan was, and that's because he got some unexpected bad news. Louis XII was summoning his troops. In just two days, December 22nd, 3,000 French troops would leave Cesare, putting him in a much diminished position. Then, at the town of Cessina, Cesare stopped and decided to have a ball. Literally, he held a dance party, with himself in apparently high spirits. Cesare evidently danced the night away. But there's even more to his bizarre behavior. Lorqua, that Spanish commander, that trusted Spanish commander, arrived at the ball late in the evening, Cesare summoning him from Rimini. The arrogant man arrived expecting a hero's welcome. Instead, he was removed from his position, clapped in irons, and thrown into the dungeon. Two days later, Christmas Day for those keeping score at home, quote, Lorqua was discovered with his body cut in two on the piazza, where he still lies, and all the people have been able to see him. No one is sure of the reason for his death, except it so pleased the Duke, says Array, who by doing so demonstrated he can make and unmake men as he wishes, according to their deserts, end quote. 
Now, without his best commander and all his French troops, everyone wondered what Césaré would do next. Alexander and Machiavelli were both among those perplexed. On December 26th, Machiavelli wrote how Borgia was, quote, a highly secretive man, and I'm convinced that no one but he alone knows what his next move will be. His chief secretaries told me that he only reveals something when he orders it to be done. He does not do anything unless he is forced to do it, and only then does he act, never otherwise. Borgia suddenly left Cecina and began marching through the countryside. He had his men fan out in an obvious attempt to make his numbers seem larger than they were. That might have been obvious to people. But what no one knew was that Borgia's numbers were not as tiny as they might appear. Only one day's march away, 800 mercenaries and 1,500 crack Swiss troops moved into position. Two days later, Borgia received a message from the conspirators. They had taken Sinigalia. The Castellan of the fortress, however, would only surrender to Cesare personally. Would he come and accept the surrender? Now, to literally anyone, this would have looked like way too much of a trap for someone as astute as Cesare Borgia to step into. Yet, to everyone's surprise, Cesare readily agreed. He wrote back that he would meet them on December 31st, only requesting that they withdraw the bulk of their troops so that his could garrison the town. And then Cesare duly marched up to Sinigalia. Upon reaching Fano, just a short day's march from Sinigalia, Cesare sent a message that he would be there tomorrow and to find a suitable residency for him. To any objective observer, Cesare Borgia looked to be walking into a trap. On the final day of 1502, Cesare Borgia and his men marched out of Fano towards Sinigalia. Observers noted that, while he was not marching to battle, Borgia wore chain mail and went fully armed. Some distance outside Sinigalia, four of the conspirators waited on horseback, unarmored and relatively unarmed. One apprehensively dismounted and walked toward Borgia. But Césaré put him at ease, dismounting and embracing him as a friend. One conspirator was missing, and when Césaré inquired, was told he was some miles off, distant with the cavalry. Borgia turned to one of whose lieutenants and asked him to go and fetch the man. His back to the other conspirators, he then winked. The five men then mounted their horses and talked genially as they rode back to Sinigalia. It was a small town, but it still had stone walls 
and a moat surrounding it. Going first, Borgia's heavy cavalry thundered across the drawbridge and through the gate. Once inside, they divided into columns and left what looked like a ceremonial space in between for everyone else to walk. Next came Borgia's 1,500 Swiss pikemen, who formed a further protective barrier. Then, his own men-at-arms, and finally, the five men themselves. No sooner were the men inside than the heavy gate swung shut. The conspirators were now completely cut off from their own troops. Within, the men dismounted and, increasingly concerned, made excuses about needing to leave. Borgia laughed them off. There was no need for that. They needed to plan. Right now. So with little alternative, the men ushered Borgia into the home selected as his headquarters. There, the five men began talking about future campaigns. Moments later, Borgia excused himself. A source tells us what happened next. Quote, Having remained a while with them, Cesare said that for necessities of nature he must withdraw, but would soon return. Hardly had he left the room than there entered the men deputed for work, who bound their hands behind their backs and took them prisoner. End quote. While Paolo Orsini cried for mercy, Borgia, now outside, ordered the conspirators' armed escort executed. Outside the town, and now seriously outnumbered, the balance of the conspirator army surrendered. Borgia rode up to see the castellan, who, terrified, duly handed over the keys to the fortress and pointed out from the highest tower the locations of all the remaining conspirator forces. Things were happening so quickly that most of these surrendered without really knowing what was happening. Then things took a bad turn. Borgia's French and Spanish soldiers began running amok, raping and pillaging, as such soldiers tend to do in this age. Borgia himself was riding around, trying to calm things down, when into the city rode Machiavelli and Leonardo da Vinci, still adjoining Cesare's camp. Borgia, amongst all the screaming, nodded, smiled, and bid the two men a pleasant day before riding off. There was no question in Borgia's mind as to the fate of his prisoners. Each was tortured to reveal the extent of the conspiracy and then garroted to death. From these men, Borgia confirmed what he already knew. They had formed an alliance with Lorqua to murder him. The plan was to go forward with the attack today at Selingalia, but Borgia's military precision and perfectly trained troops outwitted them. It was with some glee that Cesare later reported all of this to Machiavelli. Evidently, he had known for some time that Lorqua was against him and had taken to wearing chainmail every day since. On January the 3rd, 1503, a secret message arrived in Rome informing Pope Alexander of what had transpired at Sinigalia. 
Cardinal Orsini, also hearing the news, hastened to see the Pope and congratulate him, hoping against hope to save his own skin. No dice. You see, that's not how the Borgias work. He was arrested and cast into the dungeons. News of the events quickly spread throughout Italy. Maybe interestingly to us, the reaction was generally one of admiration, not revulsion. Even Machiavelli wrote, quote, The Duke's actions are accompanied by a unique good fortune, as well as superhuman daring and confidence that he can achieve whatever he wants. End quote. No sooner had he finished the job at Sinigalia, the Cesare departed, heading southwest into the Apennines. As word leaked out, hostile towns in Romagna threw open their gates. The biggest prize of all was Perugia, which sent the keys of the city to Cesare on January 15, 1503. The coup was total. But then Cesare decided to press his luck. He turned to march on Siena, which, like Florence, remained under French protection. He sent a message to Louis, claiming that he only wanted to root out the remaining conspirators. But the French king did not believe him. Louis realized that once Cesare became entrenched in either Florence or Siena, it would be impossible to get him out especially with the bulk of his power fighting in Naples. So, Louis sent word to Pope Alexander to get his son back into line. Pope Alexander did so, but it didn't appear to do any good. This time, he summoned all the ambassadors to an audience for a giant mea culpa, telling them that he had done all that he could, but Cesare would not heed him. Quote, we have done everything in our power to make Borgia, Cesare Borgia, give up the enterprise on Siena. Nonetheless, he is absolutely resolved to disregard us. We promise you that since we have sat in this chair, the papal throne, we have heard, we have never heard of anything which causes us greater displeasure. And nonetheless, we must have patience. He wills it thus and it seems to him that he can do to us with impunity that which he is doing, end quote. Heedless of Alexander's wishes, Cesare plunged into Sienese territory. For once, though, it actually seems like Cesare was telling the truth. Upon approaching Siena, he sent a message that he would leave as soon as they turned over their treacherous duke, who had, in all fairness, been helping one of the conspirators. The people refused. It turns out the guy was pretty popular. But once more, Machiavelli was right about Cesare. He was bluffing. He did not want to risk a conflict with King Louis, and the remaining Orsini were preparing to attack his father. So he had to get back. Unexpectedly, by the way, the ruler of Siena did later agree to flee after Cesare offered him amnesty. Which, you know, was a lie because it's Cesare Borgia. 
Cesare agreed, of course, and then immediately sent cavalry after the man to have him killed. But, you know, he escaped. Good for him. I'm not sure why anyone is trusting Cesare Borgia at this point. Cesare marched south, but stopped at the city of Viterbo, up some 40 miles north of Rome. Now Alexander was truly horrified. Was his son going to leave him to the wolves? Cesare, instead of attacking, opened up a dialogue with the Orsini and tried to form an alliance with the powerful Colonna family. And here again, Cesare was actually smarter than his father. If he attacked Orsini, and, you know, he might have won, by the way, then he risked alienating both King Louis and Venice, since the Orsini remained wealthy and well-connected throughout northern Italy. Cesare was actually planning for the future. His father would die someday, and if he actually wanted to succeed him, he needed allies in Rome. He couldn't alienate everybody. But while the Orsini mulled this over, Cesare, again, changed tactics, laying siege to the Orsini fortress at Seri. Seri was a tough nut to crack. The thick-walled fortress sitting at the summit of a sheer outcropping of rock, making it impervious to the cannon and the catapult. But Cesare had an ace up his sleeve, or, in this case, standing right next to him, Leonardo da Vinci. The aged but still brilliant inventor created the equivalent of medieval mortars capable of hurling explosives over the walls. Plus, he constructed a massive machine that could take 300 men up to the walls at one time. After providing this final labor, Cesare finally allowed Leonardo to return to Florence. Cesare also left, uninterested in the balance of the siege. He made for Rome, intending to catch the end of Carnival season. For two weeks, he lived it up before returning to the siege at Seti in March. Now, it's worth pointing out again that throughout all these campaigns, Cesare's military budget was completely driven by the income of the papacy. And I think you can all start to see what Martin Luther is about to complain about. For example, in March alone, Alexander created nine new cardinal positions, netting the papacy 130,000 ducats in income, all of which went to Cesare. By early April, the siege had come to an end. The Orsini in charge agreed to surrender on the condition that he be allowed to reach safety. And what's really amazing is the fact that Cesare agreed and actually kept his promise. But this was an astute move on his part. The show of clemency caused other Orsini fortresses to surrender, effectively ending the conflict. The Orsini and Borgias then signed a truce, as Louis XII was directing them to, by the way. Louis needed some peace. 
Later that same month, on April the 28th, the French were beaten by the Spanish just outside Naples. Within three weeks, the Spanish had taken the city itself. Alexander then switched sides to the Spanish. Cesare initially remained loyal to Louis, balking at his father's change of position. Though, I mean, Louis was holding his wife and daughter hostage, so there's that. But then, Cesare realized that, without French support, he might be able to take Siena and Florence, bringing the dream of a united Italy much closer into being. And then there was a new twist. News reached Rome that Louis was preparing to march south with a truly immense army and drive the Spanish out of Naples once and for all. The problem for Alexander was that he was now quite literally caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He had cozied up to the Spanish so much that he was even allowing them to recruit mercenaries within Rome. But the master of double dealing wasn't quite done yet. He sent a covert message to Louis, offering to flip sides again. This time, he said he would instruct Cesare to link up with Louis as he marched south. Cesare was at the height of his powers at this point, and his army would be a considerable boost to Louis's enterprise. He then pressed for his master stroke. Pope Alexander suggested that Cesare be placed in charge of Naples after Louis withdrew. On the surface, this was not an outrageous idea. It would make much more sense for Louis to have a pliable ally in Naples than the Spanish. But Alexander wasn't done yet. He then sent another secret message, this time to Venice. He suggested an alliance to drive the French out of Milan. I'm not sure if this counts as double or triple dealing at this point, but just think for a moment if this would have all worked. The French helped put a Borgia in command of Naples. The Venetians do the same in Milan. Suddenly, outside Florence and Venice, the Borgias are in charge of an entirely united Italy. Done and done. By early summer, Cesare was reinforcing his army for the push south. By midsummer, he had a force of 4,000 infantry and 600 cavalry, and the prospect of a lot more to come. Backed by inexhaustible papal funds, Cesare could recruit from amongst the best mercenaries in Europe. Now, normally, by late summer, Alexander would have withdrawn from the heat of Rome. But the French army was taking time to assemble, and, given that, he needed to remain in Rome to make sure all the intricate pieces of his plan, and there were many, kept working. During the first week of August, Alexander and Cesare attended a party for one of the newly minted cardinals. Set in the late afternoon in his hilltop villa, it was still quite hot but comfortable nonetheless. Six days later, the normally healthy Alexander was struck down by an illness. 
The very next day, Cesare was hit by the same malady. Rumors began to fly that both men had been poisoned. Said rumors went as follows. The Borgias had actually gone to the party with the intention of poisoning the cardinal, whose wealth Cesare needed to sustain his military enterprises. This was a thyme arsenic-based poison that would only show itself well after the poisoning. Seemingly, the Borgias drank the wrong wine and wound up poisoning themselves. These rumors spread quickly beyond Rome as both men lay on their deathbeds. In Ferrara, news of her father's and brother's plight quickly reached Lucrezia. She was inconsolable. Quote, as soon as I saw you lying there in that darkened room and in that black gown, so tearful and disconsolate, my feelings overwhelmed me, and for a long time I stood there unable to utter a word, not even knowing what to say. Instead of offering sympathy, I felt in the need of offering sympathy to myself. I left, fumbling and speechless, overcome with emotion, at the sight of your misery. End quote. Should her father and brother die, Lucrezia would be left without support. And sadly, she had made plenty of enemies at court. Luckily for her, the Duke of Ferrara was unwilling to repay her dowry. So to that extent, she could not be totally discarded and was safe. In the end, it took Pope Alexander VI, Rodrigo Borgia, six days to die. During that time, he tried any number of extreme remedies, including having himself dunked in ice-cold water, a bizarre treatment which caused his skin to peel off. But finally, on August 18th, 1503, after a reign of 11 years and seven days, Pope Alexander finally died. He was not immediately reviled, Later in the century, Pope Sixtus V was asked to name the most illustrious popes and named himself St. Peter and Pope Alexander. It really wasn't until the end of the reign of Julius II, the pope that we'll talk about next week, that Alexander starts to be associated with everything that is in the Borgia myth. And Julius has reasons for doing that, as again, we'll talk about next time. Now, according to modern historians, Alexander and Cesare had not been poisoned. What's much more likely is that both were bitten by a malaria-carrying mosquito, many of which emerge from the marshes around Rome every evening. And the symptoms that are described in the historical sources do line up with that diagnosis. Cesare Borgia would eventually recover. Years later, he would tell Machiavelli, quote, He had thought of what might happen on the death of his father and had made suitable provision for all eventualities except for the possibility that at the time of his father's death, he, too, would be at death's door. End quote. In the end, his health and luck betrayed him. 
Cesare was too weak in the aftermath of the death of his father to take part in the conclave. Even hobbled, though, he took the only action available to him. Quote, Cesare Borgia, who was sick, sent downstairs Don Miguel de Corella with an escort of heavily armed men. These entered the Pope's apartment and secured all the doors behind them. Then, one of them unsheathed his dagger and threatened Cardinal Casanova that he would slit his throat and throw him out the window if he refused to hand over the keys to the papal treasury. The terrified cardinal handed over the keys. Then Don Miguel and his men went, one after the other, into the chamber behind the Pope's bed. They took all the money that was there, and two caskets containing around 100,000 ducats. Meanwhile, the body of the Pope was laid out in the main hall of the Vatican. Not a single person stood vigil. The next morning, as the monks tried to form a procession to remove the body, a fight broke out over several gold candlesticks, and the Pope's body fell to the ground. It was so disfigured it was barely recognizable. Quote, The skin of his face was the color of black cloth, and it was disfigured with purple blotches. His nose had swelled up, and his tongue so enormous that it filled his entire mouth and ballooned out between his wide, open lips. End quote. There was worse yet to come. When they got to the graveside, no one would touch the corpse. So they dragged it to the grave by a rope. The story continues, quote, The six porters whose duty it was to bury him began making blasphemous jokes about the Pope and his grotesque appearance. The carpenters had made the coffin too narrow and too small, so they bent the mitre, wrapped the body in some cloth, and began stuffing it into the coffin anyhow, pummeling it with their fists to make it fit. End quote. The scenes in Rome following Borgia's death were chaotic. Orsini and Colonna factions marched through the streets. The French army bore down on Rome. It should come as no surprise that the cardinals decided not to hold the conclave immediately, not in the holy city at least. Encouraged by Alexander's death, the Venetians acted swiftly and invaded Romagna, pressing their claims down the coast. Urbino fell to its prior master, as did Perugia. For all the time and energy that went into creating Cesare's dukedom, it collapsed almost overnight. For the moment, Cesare remained in the Vatican. However, many cardinals started to have doubts about the validity of a conclave held outside Rome. So they sent a message asking Cesare Borgia and his guards to vacate the Vatican. He agreed, but on two conditions. One, whoever was elected had to reinstate him as captain of the papal guard. Two, a message must be sent to Venice immediately, demanding that they cease interfering in Romagna. But Cesare wasn't quite done with treachery yet. Instead of surrendering to the Spanish, as he was supposed to do as part of the deal, he abruptly left the city through another gate and fled to Nepi, one of Borgia's strongholds and close to the approaching French army. Within three days, King Louis issued a proclamation to Romagna that their duke was alive and well, 
and that he remained a friend of France. The message was clear. Any territory wavering quickly issued a declaration of loyalty to Borgia. The Duke of Ferrara had also come to the conclusion that he was better off with the Borgias for the moment than without, especially as a buffer against the Venetians. And so he gave Lucrezia permission to send 1,500 infantry and 500 crossbowmen to her brother's aid. Her reinforcements were instrumental in saving Imola, at least for now. Now, Louis made it clear to Cesare that his choice for the next pope was Cardinal Jores d'Ambros. And it was Louis's expectation that Cesare would deliver the votes of the Spanish cardinals. He did his best, but on the first vote, d'Ambros received 13 votes, while Cardinal de la Rovere got 15. Clearly, neither of the two men were going to get the needed two-thirds. So, the only option, the usual option in such circumstances, was to elect a compromise candidate that both men might expect to die soon. So, the conclave duly elected 64-year-old Francesco Piccolomini, who took the name Pius III in honor of his uncle, Pius II, who held the post before him. Within two weeks, Borgia was back in Rome at the head of his own several hundred-man army. He went to see Pope Pius III, who now realized he was completely bankrupt. All the papal coffers were empty and the treasure suspiciously missing. Cesare promised to help. If he only reappointed Borgia at the head of the papal guard, well then... Cesare would be happy to pay for Pius's coronation and lend the pontiff sufficient funds to get going. Two days later, Pius was crowned pope in a lavish ceremony, and Cesare Borgia was back in the game. The Spanish, the Colonna family, and the Orsini family could only look on aghast as Borgia once more became the most powerful man in Rome. A grateful Louis was likely even to allow Borgia to conquer Florence. It seemed the Borgia dream of a united Italy might come to be after all. Then, fortune's wheel turned again. After only 26 days as Pope, Pius died is, remains to date, one of the shortest papal reigns in history. For his own safety, Borgia quickly pulled his supporters into the formidable castle San Angelo, and once again the specter of chaos descended on Rome. The supporters of Diambros and Della Rovere took to the streets. Violence was everywhere. Della Rovere even resorted to a little medieval fake news, telling everyone that if his opponent was elected, then D'Ambros would return the papacy to Avignon. And no one wanted that. Then, Della Rovere came to his old nemesis, Cesare Borgia, with a shocking offer. If Borgia 
threw his weight behind Della Rovere and secured the votes of the Spanish cardinals. Then Della Rovere would reappoint him captain of the papal guard and support Borgia in his effort to retake lost land in Romagna. He would even seal the deal by agreeing to have his 13-year-old nephew marry Borgia's four-year-old daughter. Not now, of course, but eventually. Borgia signed the agreement, and Della Rovere was elected with an overwhelming majority on the first ballot. He took the name Julius II. Now, Julius II, despite his landside victory, was not a popular man. He, quote, was known to be a very difficult man by nature and formidable with everyone. He was notoriously restless and had inevitably offended many people, arousing the hatred and provoking the enmity of many great men. He had been a very powerful cardinal for a long time, and his cause was promoted by immoderate promises which had been made to anyone that might prove useful to him. End quote. Despite promises, he was immediately reluctant to appoint Cesare as captain of the guard. Borgia, meanwhile, marched his forces to Ostia, preparing to sail up the coast and then march his men to Romagna to begin a campaign. But there was just one issue. To do so, he needed to march through Florentine territory. He asked for permission, but Florence, confident that King Louis would support them, said no. Suddenly, Cesare Borgia was gripped with indecision. Then he pressed on in typical Cesare fashion. Evidently, he had decided to go forward with the plan regardless. He intended to break his men into different detachments and march them on to Romagna, straight through Florentine territory. This action, Julius could not abide. He sent a message to Borgia, demanding that he surrender the city of Imola, Cesena, and all other lands in the Papal States he still held as private fiefdoms. Cesare refused. When they did so, Julius sent the entire papal guard to arrest him. They found him, still recovering from malaria, resting in one of the galleys, and dragged him back to Rome, where he was housed under heavy guard. To anyone looking, Cesare was a dejected, changed man. And the question since has always been, why in the world did Cesare Borgia, so smart, so cunning, accept Julius's promise? The odds of him keeping that promise seem so small. But I think that question includes some false assumptions. We're assuming that Cesare had other options. He did not. He had no choice but to take a chance that Julius might keep his word. That he lost should not change our assessment of his decision at the time. Julius now decided to try a different tact with Borgia. He put him on trial. Despite the superiority of his position, he did not take the simple expedient of having Borgia murdered, something Cesare himself certainly would have done. Instead, he sent messages about looking for all those who had been robbed by the Borgias. 
These total claims quickly exceeded 300,000 ducats. Julius also went ahead and just charged Cesare for any of the murders and other crimes that Pope Alexander committed. All of this was done to avoid alienating two groups still loyal to Cesare, the Spanish cardinals and Louis XII. Then word arrived that Julius did not need to worry about the latter. On December 28, 1503, the Spanish finally and conclusively crushed the French army in Naples, bringing the conflict to a final end. Now, there was no reason for King Louis to aid his former friend Cesare. Cesare was only useful to Louis to win the conflict in Naples. Machiavelli wrote at the time of Borgia, quote, It looks like if little by little Borgia is sinking into his grave. End quote. Now in hindsight, there's kind of a there's kind of a double plot going on here. Because it's clear that Borgia's move to Ostia and planned departure was actually another ruse. Sure. He planned eventually to travel to Romagna, but that would be after he went to Genoa. Pope Julius seems to have realized that the former pope and his son secreted away much more money from the papal coffers than their chests and baggage revealed. In truth, a secret cache of upwards of 300,000 ducats ate truly princely sum, was in deposit in a bank in Genoa, and only Cesare Borgia knew the code that would allow the bankers to release the money. Borgia intended to use that money to shore up his position in Romagna, and who knows, perhaps even strike at the Papal States. The final stage is of Cesare Borgia's career, as one historian, I think, correctly wrote, quote, read like a fast-moving adventure story. By early 1504, the situation in Rome reached an impasse. Borgia was still under house arrest. But Julius had now come to terms with the Spanish, who controlled Naples. And the Spanish cardinals, most of whom were Borgia appointees, continued to press Julius to release Cesare. So Julius approached his former enemy with another deal. If he surrendered his remaining fortresses in Romagna, then Julius would let him go free with whatever assets he retained. Now both men were desperate at this point. Cesare obviously craved his release, and Julius needed to act before Venice snatched up any more of Romagna. In mid-February, both men agreed to the deal, and Cesare was moved back to Ostia, where he was held once more in confinement, until word arrived that the last of his Romagna fortresses had surrendered. Then, per the terms of the agreement, he would be released. On April 19th, news reached Rome, that the last fortress had surrendered. Cesare was free to go. 
Interestingly, it seems that Julius had no intention of actually releasing Borgia and was furious when news reached him that the cardinal in charge of Cesare had, you know, kept his word. I think most people, including the king himself, expected Cesare to head north at this point and link up with Louis XII in Milan. Louis, for his part, intended to give Cesare a position in the French army. Interestingly, instead, Cesare went south to Naples, meeting up with the rest of his exiled family, his brother Joffrey had been there for years now, and the rest of the Spanish cardinals, with whom, as we know, he remained on good terms. At first, Borgia was welcomed and worked to help the Spanish there prepare for an invasion of Florence. Then, the night he was scheduled to depart for Pisa and begin the final preparations for the campaign, he was suddenly rearrested and imprisoned. Julius had made a deal with the Spanish King Ferdinand, promising papal support for the planned conquest of Florence in exchange for Borgia's arrest and detention. Why? Well, contrary to prior information, one of Cesare's fortresses in Romagna had not surrendered and was actually still holding out. So Cesare was then confined to the notorious oven prison and sweated out two months before finally agreeing to send the order to have the fortress give up. Then he was, quote-unquote, released and packed onto a boat for Spain. There he was sent to the mountain fortress of Chinchilla. Julius gave Ferdinand strict instructions that Cesare was never again to set foot in Italy. Meanwhile, back in Ferrara, the old duke had died, and Lucrezia was now duchess in her own right. She endeavored to use all her influence to aid her brother, that he might end his days somewhere other than in a cell. Ultimately, however, it was fortune, not Lucrezia, that came to Cesare's rescue. On December the 26th, 1505, Queen Isabella died. Queen Isabella, of the Ferdinand and Isabella fame, had always been the saner of the two. And King Ferdinand quickly began to suspect everyone of trying to depose him. Specifically, he feared the Spanish commander of Naples, of trying to seize the territory for himself. So Ferdinand hatched a plan to send a force commanded by Cesare Borgia to remove the commander and to have Cesare be the new Duke of Naples, loyal to the Spanish crown. Fortunately for Italy, unfortunately for Cesare, the king's advisors prevailed on him to forsake this truly insane plan, which would have alienated both Pope Julius and Louis XII, who had now washed his hands of Borgia. But still, the softening of Ferdinand's attitude meant improvements for Borgia. Sensing that the tide was turning, the man in charge of holding Cesare captive began giving him more luxuries, better food, and more servants. On the night of October 25th, 1506, one of those servants secreted Cesare a rope, allowing him to climb down the castle wall. The guards, realizing this, 
cut the rope at the last moment, causing Cesare to fall the last several yards and injure himself. But his co-conspirators bundled him onto a horse and off they galloped into the night. See the whole adventure story thing? They made it to the Bay of Biscay, where a ship took him on to Pamplona and the court of his brother-in-law, Juan de Albert, the King of Navarre. Suddenly, Borgia looked like he was in good shape. After all, his 300,000 ducats were still safe in Genoa, despite Julius's best efforts, by the way. Then, honestly rather out of character, Cesare actually sought to repay his brother-in-law's kindness and volunteered to serve the king in his current civil war. In January 1507, Cesare led a force of 10,000 into rebel territory. He was soon pressing the rebel army into retreat. On the night of March the 11th, Cesare reached the city of Viana, about 50 miles southwest of Pamplona, and that's Viana, by the way, not Vienna. He immediately lay siege to the fortress. But during the night, under torrential rains, a relief rebel force managed to get inside the city, within Cesare's own lines. He awoke to panic shouts and the clashing of steel. Quickly, he donned his armor and mounted his horse. In the chaos as he chased a fleeing group of rebels, he became separated from his men. A group of three knights surrounded him in a ravine. One pierced the section under his arm with a lance, causing Borgia to fall from his horse. The three set upon him, stabbing him to death and fleecing his armor. They never even knew who they had killed. And so died Cesare Borgia on March the 12th, 1507. He was, amazingly, only 31 years old. Machiavelli wasn't done with him, though. He would later use Borgia as his exemplar in The Prince, writing, quote, For all those who rise through strength and good fortune, had he, Cesare, succeeded, as he was on the point of doing when Alexander VI died, he would have gained such power and reputation that he might have stood alone, reliant on his own strength and prowess, no longer subject to the power and fortune of others. End quote. And not to forget her, Lucrezia Borgia lived on until 1519. She was married until the end, and never again left Ferrara. So there you have it. The Borgia age. I certainly didn't intend to spend this much time covering it. But in the end, I'm glad I did. And honestly, through it all, I couldn't help but admire Rodrigo and his son. They wanted to unify Italy, and they nearly accomplished it. Had it not been for that unlucky mosquito, we might be talking about a united Italy in the 16th century, rather than the 19th. And just think about how much that might have changed the Reformation to come. Still, I have to concede that, despite my admiration of his political astuteness, Rodrigo Borgia was a very bad pope. It's almost remarkable how little he did to tend to the spiritual souls of Europe. He fleeced the papacy for all that it was worth and left Julius II a bankrupt treasury. 
From Alexander's death in 1503, we were hardly more than a decade away from the beginning of the Reformation. And Pope Alexander, well, he did nothing to stop it. Next time, we finish with Pope Julius, the warrior pope, and begin Leo X, the man who will confront Martin Luther. Then we will finally, mercifully, begin the Reformation. Told you you would get there. So this episode has been about the length that I would like every weekly episode to be. But we've reached a problem. And that problem is I'm running out of storage for the podcast. It means I have to upgrade that. So anyone, if anyone's able, anyone who's willing to become a patron for a buck a month, you can support the show. Don't need that many people and we'll get there. $2 a month, get there faster. And you get all the bonus content. It's about 100 hours worth at this point. More every single month. If you also want to support the show, but you want a simple way to do it, and you don't want to throw a shekel a month at me, all the books that I use, there's always links in the show notes. And if you click those links, it takes you to a special Amazon page. Buying the book through that page doesn't cost you any more, but I actually get a percentage from Amazon. So Amazon gets a little less. I think Jeff Bezos will be fine. So if you want to support the show and you don't want to sign up for anything extra, but you just are interested in the subjects, simply by clicking those links goes a long way to help us out. Until next time. <laughs>